she busies herself getting ready for school, her mind on whether she'll find a taxi to get to class on time. She hears the bedroom door click closed, and as she spins around, she sees him lock it. Ice runs down her spine, and her legs turn to jelly. This is not the man she thought she knew. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to episode 126, The Murder of Palesa Madiba. This episode is sponsored by AdBot. Running this podcast is time-consuming, and, well, it's just me trying to get it all done. To keep True Crime South Africa up there as a chart-topping podcast, I can't afford to spend time managing my own online marketing campaigns like Google and Bing. Thankfully, there's AdBot. AdBot manages your Google and Bing ads, optimizing them around the clock. All you do is choose your monthly budget and let AdBot do the rest. If you're a fellow one-person team like me, visit myadbot.com to sign up and enjoy three months free. Use promo code TRUECRIME at checkout. A huge thank you to AdBot for sponsoring this episode. Since 2019, True Crime South Africa has been telling the stories of the victims of violent crime in South Africa. The podcast is independent. That means no big or even little corporates fund it. And that's just the way I like it. And it's the only independent podcast in South Africa that consistently charts in the top 10. Keeping a podcast like this going is time-consuming. And for the most part, it remains a one-woman process. It's me. I'm the one woman. You? Yes, you. Are the reason this podcast continues to flourish and help bring in tips on missing person and cold cases. If you'd like to help keep the show running, please consider supporting our sponsors, signing up to Patreon or PayPal, follow the show on the socials, as the kids say, and share it with your fellow partners in crime. You can find our social links and learn more about our sponsors at True Crime South Africa forward slash donate. Shout out to this week's Patreon and PayPal superstars. A huge thank you goes out to Alison Boswell, David Arnott, Kelly Allen Wilson, Kaylee, Annemie Prinsloo, Eric Vepinar, Charlotte van Leeuwen, Carol Cole, Jeanette Marshall, Graham Oberholzer, and Shanae Bortma, who's been patiently waiting for her shout-out. Thank you so much, everyone. Patreon supporters get one additional exclusive episode a month, a shout-out on the pod, and other exclusive contents, including Q&As with me, as and when it's available. It's a minimum of $1 a month. I think you should do it. Please. And thank you. Keba. This week's episode is particularly tragic for a few different reasons. I only realized when I was actually preparing the episode 
that the timing of me doing this case is quite interesting because it's in the same month the victim disappeared. The tragic irony, of course, is that this is the month in which South Africa celebrates Women's Month and Women's Day in particular on the 9th. And this case would just prove how little that actually means in reality. In researching this episode, I used court documents related to the case, as well as articles published in the media. So let's get into episode 126, The Murder of Palesa Madiba. The following episode may contain sensitive material, including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. When Palesa was born into the Madiba family on the 7th of November 1992, she would become one of nine children born to her parents. The family lived predominantly in Diepkloof, Soweto, while the children were growing up. And despite them being a large family, they were still very close-knit. The family would be pulled even tighter together when, in 2006, when Palesa was just 14, her father passed away suddenly. Palesa's older siblings, though, stepped up and supported their mother through this difficult period. They helped to parent their younger siblings and make sure everyone stayed on track despite the tragedy. And Palesa did stay on track. She excelled academically, and her mom and siblings were always extremely proud of her achievements at school. She was also very popular. Besides being a lovely young woman, Palesa had a kind nature, and her wide, welcoming smile was her trademark. She was a huge soccer fan, likely having spent many nights at home watching games with her brothers on television. Her favourite teams were Orlando Pirates and Barcelona. She also enjoyed diverse pastimes, including tennis, volleyball, ballroom dancing and netball. Palesa had her eye on finance as a field she wanted to work in when she left school, so when she matriculated, she enrolled at the University of Johannesburg to study a Bachelor of Commerce in Accounting in 2011. Palesa did just as well at university as she did at school, and by 2013, she was well on track to completing her bachelor's degree. Although Palesa had a pretty large group of friends, one of her best friends was someone she'd known since she was in primary school. Tzidi Mkonazi lived with her grandmother and some of her extended family in Piri, Soweto. In 2013, Women's Day fell on a Friday, which made it a long weekend. Before I go any further, I think it's important to acknowledge the reason that Women's Day was actually created as a holiday in South Africa. Because I know I said in the beginning, it's a day that's come to mean very little. But that's a bit unfair if you consider that the day actually has two sides to it. The actual day is a commemoration of a 20,000-strong march of women to the Union buildings in 1956 to protest the law at the time that forced people of colour in South Africa to carry passbooks. The legislation was a tool of control by the apartheid government 
to further restrict the movements of people of colour within urban areas. The day is a celebration of these women taking a stand against these inhumane laws and the governments that attempted to enforce them. It's also a day on which all of the sacrifices that these women made to contribute toward the eventual abolishment of apartheid are acknowledged. After this day was made a national holiday, and as the years have gone by, the day has also adopted additional significance, in that it's now seen as a day, and on the greater end, part of a whole month, in which we celebrate women in South Africa, and acknowledge their achievements, the challenges they face, and what they add to our country. Unfortunately, it's also become a day and a month which stands in stark contrast to many of the ongoing issues we see in this country against women, including them being the predominant victims in gender-based violence and intimate partner violence. On the day that South Africa celebrated Women's Day in 2013, the women in Palesa Madiba's family were treated by Palesa's oldest brother, who took them out for breakfast. While they were out, Palesa mentioned that she'd been invited to a birthday party at Sidi's house that night, and she planned on staying at her friend's house the whole weekend, and she'd go straight to her university classes from there on Monday morning. After the family wrapped up breakfast and made their way back to the house, Palesa's brother offered to drop her off at Sidi's house, but she turned the offer down and said she'd take a taxi when she was ready to go. Later that day, Palesa said goodbye to her mother and siblings and headed out to the Mkunazi house. From most accounts, it appears that the party went off without a hitch and Palesa spent the rest of the weekend with Tidi. On Monday, the 12th of August, Tidi's grandmother said that she'd left the house for work at 6.30am. Tidi then left at 7am and said that she'd said goodbye to Palesa and her friend was making the bed that she'd slept in at the time. She told Palesa to lock the house when she left and leave the house keys in a specific location in the garden where they'd regularly leave the keys. Palesa said she was going straight to university from Tidi's house and her friends said she'd phone her when she got to work and check in. At 9am that morning, Tidi arrived at work and tried to phone Palesa. Her friend did not answer, and although she tried throughout the day, Palesa's phone continued to go straight to voicemail, which was very strange for a young woman who hardly ever missed a call. During the day on Monday the 12th, Palesa's family were unaware that anything was amiss. She had, after all, planned to go to university straight from Chidi's house and would only be expected back that evening after her classes finished. But when Chidi Mkonazi arrived home at around 6pm that evening and told her grandmother that she'd been unable to get hold of Palesa the entire day, the older woman was concerned too. As they sat chatting, they heard one of the tenants that lived in the back rooms on the property come home. The young man was also a family member of the Mkwanazis. 36-year-old Dumasani Mkwanazi was Tidi's uncle. 
He'd lived on the property for some time and had known Palesa as long as Tzidi had, as the two girls had grown up together. The two women called Dumasani into the main house and asked if he'd seen Palesa at all. He said he'd seen her leave that morning and described what she was wearing, a turquoise jacket and blue jeans. After hearing this, Tidi called Palesa's family and asked if she'd made it home or if anyone there had heard from her. The Madiba family had just been starting their evening, preparing dinner, expecting Palesa to walk through the door at any moment when the call came in. Confusion reigned as members of the large family called one another, mapping out when last each had had contact with Palesa. No one in the family had spoken to her that day. Knowing that she'd been headed to university that morning, her sisters reached out to some of her fellow students, and none of them had seen her in classes that day either. By the time darkness had fallen over Johannesburg, Palesa's family was headed to Moroka police station, where they would meet with Tidi to open a missing persons case for Palesa. In the days that followed the case being opened, surveillance cameras at the Soweto campus of the University of Johannesburg were reviewed, and Palesa was not seen entering the premises. With the Mkwanazi home having been the last place that Palesa was seen, police visited the home and interviewed its occupants. With Dumasani Mkwanazi having been the self-confessed last person to have seen Palesa, he was interviewed and seen as a person of interest. He repeated that he'd last seen Palesa when she'd left the house on the morning of the 12th. He described what she'd been wearing and said she'd given him the house keys as she left. As part of the investigation, Palesa's cell phone activity was tracked. It had remained switched off for quite some time, until a few days after she was last seen. It suddenly reactivated, and police were able to track it down to a pawn shop in the Johannesburg CBD. This was not a good sign for police or Palesa's family. If she'd been separated from her phone, there was a good chance she'd come to some harm. But without any proof, her family could only hope for a positive outcome while police continued to investigate. The first time Palesa's disappearance made the news was a week after she went missing. The campus of UJ that she attended was abuzz with the story. Posters displaying Palesa's picture fluttered in the wind against walls of classrooms, and the young woman's friends racked their brains for ideas of what could have happened to her. After that first buzz of activity in the week after Palesa's disappearance, her case went very cold, very quickly. Then, more than a month after Palesa disappeared, a tip came in to police officers as well as several of Palesa's family members. In the tip, a woman living in Dobsonville, Soweto, claimed that Palesa was living in a house with four young men. She provided an address for the house she claimed Palesa was at, and police reacted very quickly, arriving at the home but finding it unoccupied. After several hours of staking out the house, four male residents did return to the home and police closed in. They questioned the young men for hours, 
and eventually discovered that the tip had been false. The woman who'd given the tip was arrested and admitted that she'd lied to cause trouble for the four men with whom she'd had an unrelated issue. The woman was charged with providing police with false information and handed down a suspended sentence. Possibly the most heartbreaking part of this fake tip was that the woman had contacted Palace's family as well. If she'd only given the tip to police, while that still would have been bad enough and still would have wasted police's time, they could have looked into it and disregarded it, and the family never even had to get their hopes up. I cannot imagine why a person would do this to a family who's already in such a difficult position. And I honestly hope this woman is remorseful for what she did. Later that month, a discovery in Jabulani would revitalize the investigation, but presented a situation that would cause Palesa's family further distress. A group of residents on a community safety patrol discovered a shallow grave behind the Jabulani Amphitheatre. Police were called, and a painstaking process began to remove the deceased from the makeshift grave. The victim was severely decomposed, but the clothing was similar to what Palesa was allegedly last seen wearing, and her family were advised that there was a possibility it could be her. Agonising days ticked past, as the identification process was carried out, but it was eventually confirmed that the body was not that of Palesa Madiba. Having spoken with the families of missing people, they often share with me how moments like this are a confluence of conflicting emotions. On one hand, they just want to know what's happened to their loved one and where they are. But at the same time, they definitely don't want their loved one to be dead. So, when the confirmation comes through that an unidentified body is not their loved one, they experience both relief and a bit of disappointment. I have no doubt that this was the same for Palesa's family at this moment, and they could have no idea that this would be the last movement of any kind in her case for many years to come. Over the course of the rest of 2013, 2014, and most of 2015, Palesa's case remained unsolved and she remained missing. Over the years, her family would be called out on a few occasions to identify bodies in mortuaries. None of these, of course, were Palesa, but each horrifying instance was just more traumatizing for her family members tasked with the identifications. Other than these occasional requests for identifications, absolutely no further movement occurred in Palesa's case. Then, just after 8am on the 16th of December 2015, a call came in to Moroka Police Station. The caller said they'd wished to remain anonymous, but insisted that their information was extremely important. The caller said that they'd been in the backyard of a house in Piri, Soweto, and they'd seen a skeletonized hand protruding from a mound of cement under a washing line. The address was provided, and the caller confirmed 
that the surname of the family who lived there was Mkwanazi. The officers were very familiar with the house, and they immediately remembered the link to a still unsolved missing persons case from 2013. It was the house at which Palesa Madiba had last been seen. Within hours, Captain Amos Maneta, who was now in charge of Palesa's case, had secured a warrant for the premises on the basis of the anonymous tip-off and gathered a team to begin the search. Included in the team were dogs trained in the detection of, of the scent of decomposition and forensic anthropologists remained on standby in case remains were recovered. The canine team was first to sweep the premises. Although the caller had given a specific location, officers wanted to ensure they were thorough, so they let the dogs search the entire property. Now, before I move on, I do want to acknowledge that it seems really odd to me that this is the first time police had brought cadaver-scent dogs to this house. I get that they had no evidence at the time that Pelesa had been harmed at the property, but in my mind, they also had no evidence that she had ever actually left the house. And once we get into some of the information around the behaviour of one of the persons of interest in this case, it becomes even stranger to me that this was never done. But it wasn't. On that day, though, the dogs did alert to the exact spot the anonymous caller had indicated. And really, although it was good confirmation because these dogs only react to the scent of human decomposition, officers would not actually need that confirmation because just as the caller had said, there, emerging from the paving, which was beginning to sag, clear as day, was the skeletonized hand of a human being, reaching through the collapsing paving as though calling out for attention, for help. Mrs. Mkwanazi was advised that her property was now considered a crime scene, and for the next few days, the property buzzed with police officers, forensics teams, and eventually, as the skeleton beneath the paving was slowly revealed, forensic anthropologists. The fully skeletonized body lay facing upward. It would be vital to get photographs of the body in situ because it was perfectly in place, right there. But the minute anyone would attempt to move it, it would inevitably begin to crumble and separate. This meant one important thing, of course. The skeleton could not have been placed there after the fact. The person to whom the skeleton belonged had not died elsewhere and had their bones surreptitiously planted in the backyard of the Mkwanazi family. This would not have been scientifically possible. Instead, the perfect placement of each and every one of the 206 bones that make up the human body spelled out one thing. The victim had been placed into that cement grave soon after death, and their entire decomposition process, right down to skeletonization, had taken place there. 
although the circumstances around the discovery already gave police a good feeling that this would be the body of Palesa Madiba, and her family had started to gather in the crowd around the home, perhaps hoping they would get some news or just needing to be closer to where she could possibly be. The clothing found in the grave with the body and on the body also closely fit the description of what Dumasani Mkwanazi had said Palesa was wearing on the day she was last seen alive. Palesa's own police docket was still a missing persons case. The discovery of this body meant that a murder docket would be opened, with the details of the victim being initially listed as unidentified. If and when identification was confirmed, those two cases would be combined. Before that, though, staff at the Forensic Pathology Services in Bramfontein were tasked with helping to identify the victim and performing an inspection of the bones to determine as much as they could about any injuries or cause or manner of death. As I've mentioned before, the longer a body is left to decompose, the more difficult it is to glean physical evidence from it. As the decomposition process starts, skin discolors and bruises or lacerations are difficult to make out. The decomposition process will often also destroy any DNA evidence in or on the body, which may relate to a sexual assault or any other transfer from a murderer to a victim. When the body reaches skeletonization, though, a huge amount of information is lost. If a victim was stabbed or shot, proof of those wounds would be lost unless the wound had somehow reached bone level, which does occasionally happen. Signs of strangulation around the neck and its muscles are often lost the longer a body is left to decompose. As we know, The hyoid bone is sometimes broken during some types of strangulation, but the hyoid bone is also quite unconventional in the body as far as bones go, because it's not attached to any other bones. It's attached only to ligaments and cartilage, which will decompose, and the hyoid will often fall away. Of course, blunt force injury, if the blows are severe enough to break bones, will still be evident, even if only a skeleton remains. But it wasn't just a cause and manner of death that the scientists at the medico-legal laboratory were being asked to determine that day. As they stood over the bones recovered from the home in Pedi, one of the most important determinations was identity. Very often, when bodies cannot be identified by fingerprints or visual means, One of the easiest ways to make a provisional identification is through the means of dental records. Given that the bulk of our population in South Africa does not have access to regular dental care, here things work a little differently with dental identifications. Often, the family of the missing will be asked to provide a high-quality photograph of the missing person, smiling, with their teeth showing. Then, That photograph will be enlarged as far as possible so that scientists can use the unique structure of the missing person's teeth to compare to the teeth in the skull recovered. 
In the beginning of this episode, I told you that Palessa's beautiful wide smile was one of her most memorable characteristics. It would also be one of the characteristics that would contribute to her identification. The minutes Palessa's family had seen photographs of the bones that had been recovered in the backyard in Pedi, they said they'd known immediately it was Palessa from the teeth. And two weeks after the recovery of the skeleton, on the 29th of December 2015, police arrived at the Madiba home to confirm just this. Through various methods, they had confirmed that the remains recovered were indeed those of Palesa Madiba. Her missing persons case was now a murder case. The inspection of Palesa's bones also revealed a likely cause of death. A crack in her skull indicated she must have sustained blunt force trauma. Sadly, though, if the Madiba family thought that this breakthrough would lead to the arrest of the person who'd killed Palesa, they would have to wait even longer for that. Looking at this case as an outsider, it seems almost ridiculous that the main person of interest when Palesa had gone missing the man who'd been the last to see her, would not immediately have been arrested when her body was recovered on the same property he lived on. It may also seem easy to assume that police just weren't interested in resolving this case. But it really does seem, when we look a little deeper, that this is just one of those cases where time had to pass in order for evidence to be revealed. We occasionally see cases where it seems obvious who the offender is, but there just isn't enough evidence to prove it in a court of law. As I've said before, what you know and what you can prove are often two very different things. Captain Amos Maneta had a deep suspicion that Dumasani Mkwanazi was somehow involved in Palesa's murder, but he didn't have enough evidence to prove it yet. And the more the captain started to ask around about Dumasani, the more he realized that pinning the man down was going to be more difficult than he'd thought. It's emerged during his investigation that Dumasani Mkwanazi was a rather feared man in the local community. The man had five children with five different women, and many believed he was someone who was above the law. He also had a reputation for always being armed with illegal firearms. Dumasani also had a record, although it had only served to contribute to his reputation of being above the law. In the years after the discovery of Palesa's body, Dumasani appeared in court for a murder charge, but it wasn't for Palesa's murder. He was charged with shooting a man in a tavern at point-blank range in front of an entire room of people. Despite the plethora of witnesses in that case, though, by the time the case got to court, not a single person was available to testify, and Dumasani was acquitted in that case. As Captain Maneta continued to dig, though, it became clear that his attention was wholly unwanted and he began to receive death threats. One night he was called back into the office after someone had attempted to break into his office through the roof. The only documents taken related to Palesa Madiba's case. 
but Captain Maneta had everything digitised as well, so it was no loss to his investigation. But it was very clear that the intruder had been looking for the Palesa Madiba docket. Captain Maneta would say that looking back, it felt like Dumasani Mkwanazi was always one step ahead of him, no matter what he tried to do. But soon, time would run out for the man, and someone would speak out. Six years after Palesa disappeared, Captain Maneta received a telephone call that would blow the investigation wide open. A man who'd been close friends with Dumasani Mkwanazi for many years told the officer that he'd heard the man make an admission about his involvement in Palesa's murder. The source claimed that one night, while a group of their friends, including him and Dumasani, were drinking in Cliptown, a woman within the group had said she was tired and she wanted to go and sleep in Dumasani's car. The source said that Dumasani had told the woman that if she went anywhere near his car, he would crush her, like he had done with Palesa Madiba. When the wording of this account was compared with what police knew had happened to Palesa in terms of her having sustained a head injury, and added to that the fact that Dumasani was the last person to have seen her, he was known to be violent, and her body was found on the premises on which he lived, the Director of Public Prosecutions agreed that there was sufficient evidence to issue a warrant of arrest for Dumasani Mkwanazi. But as had been the history in this case, even this was not going to be an easy matter. When Captain Maneta attempted to arrest Dumasani, the man evaded capture at every move. The people protecting the man seemed to be watching the detective, so it soon became clear that he would have to have other officers trace Dumasani because the man was just too well protected. Eventually, the tide turned in the captain's favour, and he received news that Dumasani would be appearing in court on a completely unrelated firearms charge for which he was out on bail. The captain set up a sting with officers that wouldn't be known to Dumasani or his cohorts and waited outside the courtroom. As soon as he exited, Dumasani was placed under arrest for the murder of Palesa Madiba. Although Dumasani, when questioned, denied any involvement in the young woman's murder, Captain Maneta was adamant that he was, he was not going to let him get out on bail. He knew that if he did, he would never see the man again, and Palesa's family, who'd already waited six years for justice, would not get the closure they deserved. At the end of July 2019, Dumasani appeared in court for the first time in this case. He was charged with murder, robbery with aggravating circumstances relating to Palesa's phone, which had been sold to the pawn shop, defeating the administration of justice for lying to police and burying Palesa's body in the backyard, and the illegal possession of a firearm, which related to the other case he'd been involved with. Due to the seriousness of the case, it would be transferred to the South Gauteng High Court. Dumasani would go through a string of lawyers, and this would result in multiple delays. In amidst this, of course, the COVID-19 pandemic hit, 
and lockdown happened, so all court cases were postponed. Eventually, the trial was set to start in November 2020, but when all arrived, it emerged that Dumasani's lawyer was not present. He'd sent a brief to advise the judge that he would be stepping down from the case as he hadn't received any instructions from his clients and he also hadn't been paid. The judge asked Dumasani if he'd like a lawyer from legal aid, but the man said he did not. He claimed he'd be appointing another private lawyer in due course. It seemed clear to all that Dumasani was trying to play the system to buy as much time as he could, but the judge was not having it. He gave the defendant two days to find and brief a lawyer. There would be no further delays, he said, and the trial would proceed as he'd given Dumasani more than enough time. When the trial began, Dumasani pleaded not guilty to all the charges against him. Tidi Mukonazi took the stand as one of the prosecution witnesses. It would emerge during her testimony that Dumasani had told her and her grandmother that he hadn't gone to work on Monday the 12th because he'd been tired after the long weekend. She then testified about the day that Palesa's skeleton was found on their property and told the court that Dumasani had not been at the house on that day and that they'd phoned him and he'd met them at the police station. It would emerge that things had become strained after Palesa's disappearance between the Mkwanazi and Madiba families. While the Madiba family were understandably distraught at the unresolved nature of Palesa's case and spent all those years trying to figure out what happened to her, the Mkwanazis just seemed to want to get out from under the dark cloud that had settled over them and their home since the day Palesa went missing. T.D. seemed to be pulled in two directions, wanting to help find her friend, but also feeling pressure that her uncle was a person of interest and her own family was under suspicion. Other tenants that lived at the house at the time were also called to testify. This was important because the prosecution needed to ensure that they counted out any other possible suspects on the premises. It was now obvious that Palesa had never left the Mkwanazi home, and while Dumasani had confirmed that he'd personally seen her that morning, he'd also claimed to have seen her leave. So it was important to show that he, and only he, could have been responsible for her death. One of the other female residents on the property testified that Dumasani had also told her that he'd seen Palesa leave at 7am that morning and that she'd given him the house keys, which he'd then produced. It was common cause that Palesa had been the last person in the main house and that she'd been instructed to leave the house keys in a hiding place in the garden. The only way Dumasani could have received those keys was from Palesa, and he was the only person other than her on the property in those early morning hours. Add to that the fact that Palesa clearly never left the property, and early on, the picture painting Dumasani's guilt was already pretty clear. The female tenant then testified that five days after Palesa had gone missing, she was hanging washing in the backyard when she noticed that the area underneath the washing line had been paved 
She said that she hadn't seen any workmen or people she didn't recognize at the property in that week, so she assumed that the paving must have been laid by someone who lived there. Around the same time as this paving was laid, a door inside the house was also changed. This was done by a man who'd done DIY work at the home before. He would testify that when he'd done that job, he'd noticed that the paving had been laid underneath the washing line. He said the paving was laid unevenly, and in one spot there were four coloured bricks laid together, and that this was at an angle. He'd asked Dumasani about it, and said that he could redo the paving to make it look better. The man testified that Dumasani had appeared irritated at the suggestion, and said he'd done the paving himself, and he'd done it like that for a reason, because water often pooled on one end of the section, and the bricks were there to stop that. Photographs shown in court, taken by police when they'd arrived to begin excavating the grave, showed that Palesa's head was underneath the section where the four bricks had been laid. In cross-examination, Dumasani's lawyer would deny that Dumasani had ever told the man he'd laid the paving, but the contractor was insistent and said that there was no way he'd imagined that or nor any reason why he would lie about it. The source of the original tip that had led to the arrest warrant was revealed in court when one of Dumasani's long-term friends, Richard Mlangu, took the stand. He confirmed that Dumasani had threatened a woman in their company at the time by telling her he would crush her like he did to Palesa. Richard said he and Dumasani had later been alone and he'd brought it up again and asked Dumasani what had happened to Palesa. He said Dumasani had become irritated with him and then finally repeated that he'd crushed Palesa. Richard also told the court that he'd been around both Dumasani and Palesa on a few occasions at get-togethers at the Mkwanazi house, and Dumasani had commented on Palesa's appearance a few times, telling Richard that he was very attracted to the girl and thought she was beautiful. Richard said that since Dumasani had made this admission to him, their friendship of more than 20 years had crumbled, and eventually he'd felt it necessary to release that information to police. He did not have an answer as to why he'd held on to that information for so long. Lawrence Hill, the technician who'd assessed the damage to Palesa's skeletal remains, testified that besides the crack in Palesa's skull, he'd also noted damage to the bones along the front and back, and he was confident that this damage had been caused at the same time. He said the most likely scenario for this type of damage would be if the body had been pushed between two rigid structures and essentially crushed. An example he gave was if the body was laying flat on the floor and another heavy object had been dropped onto the head and torso. The judge asked Hill if he would use the word crushed to describe this type of injury, and he confirmed that this is one word that might describe it. Dumasani, unlike many other defendants, did take the stand in his own defence. 
He used this opportunity to deny all of the allegations made against him, especially that of his longtime friend, Richard. He reiterated that the last time he'd seen Palesa, she was alive and well and getting ready to leave the house, and he told her to leave the keys in a specific place for him. This, on its own, went against what he told Sidi on the day when he'd said that Palesa had handed him the keys. He then claimed that after his last interaction with Palesa, he'd left the property and hadn't seen her again after that. In closing, the prosecutor would run through the evidence and reaffirm how the various people who'd given testimony could not have gotten the information from anyone except the last person to see Palesa and the person who killed her, which in this case, according to them, was the same person, Dumasani Mkwanazi. They also pointed out that it would be strange for someone to have taken such deep notice of someone else's clothing that they would still be able to describe that clothing seven years after the fact. The prosecution suggested that the reason Dumasani could so carefully describe Palesa's clothes was because he'd had close contact with her and her body for an extended period of time, and those clothing items were seared into his memory. It did emerge during the trial that a rope had been found inside the grave with Palesa's body. The judge would later note that the prosecution had not presented a witness to lead evidence around how this rope could have been used in the murder, but the judge noted on record that such evidence would not necessarily have moved the case forward, nor did it make any difference to Dumasani's case either. Had any type of strangulation taken place, that would not have been known to pathologists because there was no tissue or muscle left on Palesa's body by which to judge that. The rope could also have been used to tie Palesa up, or it could have been used to drag her body to the grave that had been prepared for her. With both sides resting their cases, on the 4th of December 2020, Judge Magnati announced that he had found Dumasani Mkwanazi guilty of murdering Palesa Madiba. He found that no other party could reasonably have been responsible for her murder, and that those who'd given evidence did not have any reason to lie and wrongly implicate Dumasani. Three months later, in 2021, almost eight years after Palesa Madiba was murdered, the judge handed down his sentence. Dumasani Mkwanazi was handed down 20 years for the murder, three years for the theft of her cell phone, eight years for defeating the ends of justice. 10 years for being in the possession of an unlicensed firearm, and 2 for the ammunition. Because the firearm charge related to a separate case, his effective term of imprisonment was 31 years, with one year of the ammunition charge being suspended. The judge pointed out that Dumasani had had several opportunities to take the court into his confidence and explain what had happened on that day, but he had chosen instead to continue lying and denying the clear evidence that was put before the court. The judge also felt that the crime was made worse by the fact that Dumasani's niece, Tidi, had been close friends with Palesa, and he'd seen both Palesa and Tidi grow up in front of him. As a result, Palesa would have trusted him 
and likely never would have suspected that he would be dangerous to her. The judge said, quote, The death of the deceased is a glaring loss to her family and friends. The unfortunate part of this is that your family will be able to visit you in prison. They will be able to talk to you and to touch you, unlike her family, who will look at her photos, videos, and listen to her voice notes. You had enough time to think about how to dispose of Palesa Madiba's body. You treated her as if she was less than human by burying her like a dog in your yard, despite the fact that she was treating you as her uncle. You are not remorseful. End quote. He continued, The deceased has been deprived of the love of her loved ones. You didn't only take her life, you completely disregarded the sanctity thereof and what life meant to her and those who loved her, most of all her mother. In the course of murdering her, you gave the impression that she left to attend classes while knowing that you had buried her in a shallow grave. End quote. Alluding to a possible motive, which of course had been on everyone's mind, the judge said that Dumasani had robbed Palesa of her dignity in life, and then continued with that disregard for her by disposing of her body in a shallow grave while her family searched high and low for her. Of course, due to the skeletal condition of Palesa's body, there was absolutely no way to tell whether she'd been sexually assaulted, but the evidence about how Dumasani had regularly told people he was attracted to her and his conduct in day-to-day -day life in regard to women led many to believe that this murder was sexually motivated and that sadly there's a very good chance that Dumasani had killed Palesa after raping her because he knew that she would go to police. He probably also knew that she had a large, supportive family who would not hesitate to back her in laying charges against him. Through social workers and in their own statements in the media, the Madiba family expressed how deeply they'd been impacted by what had become an almost decade-long nightmare for their family. Her siblings all suffered in different ways. Her brothers took responsibility on themselves for not having protected her, although, of course, it's in no way their guilt to carry. Her mother said that her entire life had been turned on its head, and she felt like everyone had been on pause for the eight years since Palesa had disappeared. She said she didn't know if the sentence would change that, and only time would tell. She also shared that the family had closed ranks and they now found it really difficult to trust anybody outside of their home. Palesa's sisters, who'd been at school or university with her when she disappeared, said that they all struggled to continue with their studies and concentrate, because they felt like everything was pointless, if any of their lives could just be ripped away at any moment. Although the family's relationship with the police had ebbed and waned over the years, they had only praise for Captain Amos Maneta, who they said had fully committed himself to getting justice for Palesa, even when his own life was threatened. 
One of the things that really stands out for me in this case is the importance of the people who came forward. Each time someone found the courage within themselves to stand up to Dumasani and do what was right, the case moved forward. And really, if it wasn't for these people, I do wonder whether Palesa would ever have been found. And perhaps Dumasani would have gone on to do this to someone else. Whenever I look at cold cases for this podcast, I get the strong feeling that in those cases too, someone out there undoubtedly knows something important. And I think this case is testament to the importance of finding the courage within us, regardless of how scared we may be, to tell the truth and do what is right on behalf of those like Palesa who can no longer help themselves. There is so much tragedy in this case. I find it difficult to imagine how Palesa must have felt in the moment she realized she was in a dangerous situation. The Mkwanazi home was like a second home to her. She'd known these people for so much of her life. She must have seen them as family and felt as safe there as she did in her own house. But as we see in so many cases, often the most dangerous people can be found in the place in which we feel the safest. Dumasani Mkwanazi was undoubtedly arrogant from the start. He thought that Palesa's body was his to do with as he pleased, that she was nothing more than a possession and could be discarded in what he thought was a clever way. For almost three years, Dumasani would look out of his window or go and hang his washing and know exactly what was buried under that paving. I can't help but wonder if in some perverse way this was exactly what he wanted. To be able to relive the horrendous act every single day and perhaps even more so, to know that Palesa still remained under his control. Unfortunately for him, the concrete he used to hide her crumbled just as easily as his character. The love that people had for her was far stronger than anything he could do, and her family never gave up on her. Ultimately, he couldn't steal what was the most beautiful thing about Palesa, her memory, the way she had made people feel, and the deep understanding that even in her death, she was stronger and more cherished than he could ever dream of being. Palesa Madiba, rest gently. If you'd like to hear more victim-focused true crime content, please subscribe to True Crime South Africa on Spotify or the platform you're using to listen right now. If you're looking for something still related to real-life stories, but often with a more positive slant, you can check out my new podcast series, I Live Through This. You can follow both podcasts on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next week 
with another episode. Until then, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon. <laughs>